you all from the bottom of my heart. Today I'm thinking a lot of things. I'm thinking of my old playground director in San Diego, California, Rodney Lustum. My old high school coach, Lost Caldwell. My managers who had such patience with me and helped me so much. Fellows like Frank Schellenbach, my first manager in San Diego in 1936. Tony Bush, who was my manager after Red Sox, brought me and farmed me out to Minneapolis. Joe Cronin, who I can't say enough wonderful things about, and he knows and I know how important he was to me. I'm thinking of Tom Yawkey, and I've always said it, and I'd like to repeat it again today, that to me, Tom Yawkey's the greatest owner in baseball. And I was lucky to have played on the club he owned, and I'm grateful here for his being here today. But I'm not, I'd not be loving if I elected it that, because ball players are not born great. They're not born hitters or pitchers or managers, and luck isn't the key factor. No one has come up for a substitute for hard work. I've never met a great baseball player who didn't have to work harder and learning to play baseball than anything else he ever did. To me, it was the greatest fun I ever had, which probably explains why today I feel both humility and pride, because God let me play the game and to learn to be good at it, probably because I spent most of my life in the company of so many wonderful people. There are plaques dedicated to baseball men of all generations, and I'm privileged to join them. Baseball gives every American boy a chance to excel, not just to be as good as someone else, but to be better than someone else. This is the nature of man and the name of the game, and I've always been a very lucky guy to have worn a baseball uniform, to have struck out or hit a tape major home run. And I hope that someday the names of Satchel Page and John Gibson in some way can be added as a symbol of the great Negro players that are not here only because they were not given a chance. And I know Casey Stengel feels the same way, and I'm awfully glad to be with him on his big day. I also know I'll lose a dear friend if I don't stop talking, as I know I'm eating into his time. <laughs> and, uh, that is, <laughs> and that is unforgettable. So in closing, I'm grateful, and I know how lucky I was to have been born in America and had a chance to play the game I love, the greatest game of them all, baseball. Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Polly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, 
Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the incomparable, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Want to welcome one and all from my OG Seamheads, who have traveled this road of baseball moments and stories with me, to the pod surfer who came about this barrel in an ocean of baseball shows. Thank you for stopping by and giving us a shot here at BKP. I actually love and care about my audience. I mean, what a concept. I will never charge you heads for the content. No crowdsourcing. No Patreon. I'm never going to load it up with a bunch of commercials after five minutes of talking. Look, I'm just here to give you that free baseball smoke. Fresh out the can every single Tuesday. Please remember to share, follow, subscribe, and download. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. I'm on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Help a good brother out if you're an Apple or Spotify user. Please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I'd skirt. I have over 160 years of uh, baseball stories from the uh, Cincinnati Redlegs of the 1860s all the way up to the 2022 Savannah Bananas in my archives. And now I'm pretty much working on all things in between. Although I do have a sneaky suspicion there will be an Albert Pujols uh, show coming up. Uh, when his awe-inspiring career comes to a close here after the 2022 season. My point is, I stand proudly by this show and this research. So please, by all means, rate and review me as you see fit. And it really does help Michelle. I want to thank everyone for the warm regards on last week's show as well, the death of Ray Chapman. I got quite a few messages about it, and it really makes me feel good to know that these shows uh, can touch people's lives sometimes. Ronald, originally from Lorain, Ohio, now lives in Alexandria, Virginia. He was telling me about his framed original article from a New York City newspaper that he has about that day. Sent me a photo shot. I mean, that is quite a piece of history you have there, Ronald. Thanks for sharing your story, and thanks for listening. And I love stuff like that. And my main man, Leo, down under, Melbourne, Australia, dropping me a line. Once again, great story about Ray Chapman, mate. I knew a bit about this one, but your research was great, and you provided uh, more light into this tragic event. Keep these pods coming. And Leo, thank you, mate. Like I told you, you keep listening, I'll keep making them. And folks, Leo is... Well, he's one of these OG seam heads I speak of. He's been following me through all my endeavors long before BKP. And I love that dude. He emigrated from Venezuela once the Hugo Chavez regime took over his country. He fled to Australia. And in a couple months from now, I'm going to be covering baseball in Venezuela. And he's going to be joining me for that show to give you, you know, like this insider's look at the Venezuela culture that breeds all these gold glovers. I can't wait for that. Thank you. For spreading the gospel of Backwards K-Pod down there in Australia. Uh, your corner of the world. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. Thank you very much. And if you would like to message me, there are quite a few ways to reach out. 
You can email the show at backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show's Twitter page is at back underscore K underscore podcast. Or you can find me on these, you know, various baseball group pages on Facebook, including the Sugar Daddy of them all, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, the most comprehensive and interactive page in the book. Okay. With all that being said, looks like the catcher is coming down. Let's get this track. And we're going to be rolling in with this week's topic as we will be taking a look under the hood and collecting the story of the splitted splinter, Ted Williams. And where do we start with Teddy Ballgame? Any argument over who the greatest MLB hitter to ever live certainly involves Ted Williams. Of course. All of these arguments, you know, they're, they're, they're perception-driven. And they can never be answered definitively. Everybody has their own opinion. But the argument always has to involve Ted. They absolutely have to. And that says a lot. One could literally count the legitimate contenders on one hand. You know, if you, you had six fingers, like Antonio Alfonseca. You got Ruth, Bonds, Louis G, Teddy, Aaron, Mays. Maybe a little Joe D, Hornsby, Musil on the cusp there. And of course, Teddy. And if the name of the game is getting on base, well, no one did it like the splinter. His 482 OBP is an MLB record and is in no jeopardy whatsoever being passed. People speak of records that will never fall, but they never mention this one. That's 48.2% of the time that dude was on base. That's almost, you know, 50% of his plate appearances. And let's put that in an even clearer perspective. In my generation, Barry Bonds was an OBP machine. Dude was getting intentionally walked with the bases drunk. He finished with a 444 OBP. Uh, Tony Gwynn, who always felt like he was on base, he comes in at 388. So, trust me, folks, this record will never fall. Well, not in my lifetime, at least. And by the way, Ruth is second in all-time OBP at 474. As far as active players right now, Mike Trout has a 414 career OBP, and Joey Votto of the Reds, he's second at 412 currently. And one of the reasons for Williams' high on base percentage was his self discipline. He refused to give in and expand the strike zone throughout the years. Quite a few umpires would tell the complaining catchers holding his frame that if Mr. Williams didn't swing at it, then it wasn't a strike. And even in his 1939 rookie campaign, the kid knew the zone, walking 107 times, ranking second in the American League. And across the length of his playing career, which touched four decades, from 1939 to 1960, Williams walked 20.75% of the time that he had a plate appearance, which is basically more than one walk every five times at bat. 20.75% of his plate appearances. That averages out to uh, one walk every five times at bat. A little bit under that. And he was so disciplined that even if a pitch was in the zone and he had like this 
uncanny ability to not put a swing on it or even foul it off. If it was a pitch that he felt like he couldn't drive, he wasn't really swinging at it. His mentor, Rogers Hornsby, it drove that point home in Ted's psyche when he was very young. Get a good pitch to hit and then hit it. It sounds simple enough. For example, if a pitcher drops a slider low and away for a strike in Teddy's most, let's call it vulnerable spot, right? He doesn't have many of them, but let's say this. While you would simply let that pitch go, tip your cap, take your strike, and wait for something better. Unless there were two strikes on him. But, you know, Teddy was always looking for his pitch to drive. At age 20, he dropped his memorable quote. All I want out of life is when I walk down the streets for people to say, there goes Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. And it was, he was asked before he died if he felt like he accomplished that dream. He wistfully, wistfully replied, I, I truly don't know, but I'm proud to be mentioned with Ruth. The splinter had strong opinions about hitting and what entailed being great at it meant. In his mind, it involved the ability to hit for average and power. Had Teddy been willing to sacrifice average for power... He probably would have finished with more than 521 home runs. Had he been one to sacrifice power for average, well, Pete Rose may have been chasing Teddy instead of Ty Cobb for the most MLB hits. He was a blend. Not like a fine Colombian coffee. And to become this great hitter, it was a goal he set for himself long before his glory days at Fedway in front of the Red Sox faithful. Ted Way was born August 30th, 1918, San Diego, California. Uh, it was just as 104th birthday we passed two weeks ago by the time this show drops. His father, U.S. Cavalryman uh, Samuel Williams, and his mother, a Mexican-American named May. They had a rocky marriage, and they were also leaving Teddy and his younger brother Danny to fend for themselves. Fortunately, the neighbors welcomed the two boys in. And Teddy would spend endless hours playing baseball at the North Park Playground in SoCal. Uh, and that's where he met playground director Rod Luscombe. Uh, you may have heard him mention that name when he was doing his Hall of Fame speech at the beginning of the show. Well, Rod Luscombe, he saw Teddy's drive and he took him under his watch. Why? By the time Teddy reached high school, he was an exceptional player, a Sandlot legend. And he attracted the attention of Coach Wolford Caldwell, or Wolfs, as the kids affectionately called him. Another uh, guy he mentioned in that speech in the beginning of the show. It was the bat that originally caught Coach uh, Caldwell's eye. But Teddy was an amazing prep pitcher as well for the Hoover High Cardinals. He averaged a smidge under a dozen strikeouts a game, and he was the team's ace. But his bat... You know, was also like, you know, this man amongst boys shit. So, he literally played in the lineup somewhere every game. While still in high school, Ted signs his first professional baseball contract to play with the locally based San Diego Padres of the Baltimore Pacific Coast League in 1936. He batted a modest 271 with zero home runs. And, you know, who knew the Padres played in San Diego in 1936? I mean, show of hands from anyone not from California who knew that. 
seven, eight, nine, okay, a few of you. Upon graduation from high school, Ted played another season for the Friars, and he raised his average to 291 and dropped 23 donks. Boston Red Sox GM, they took a lightning, a liking to the developing Ted while scouting in it. They invited him to the uh, Red Sox spring training camp in Florida, spring of 1938. Williams, with all of his seemingly infinite skill set, was you know, he was brash and cocky. And it was deemed he needed a four-year seasoning. So he was assigned to the Minneapolis Millers, where he demolished that league and route to the American Association's Triple Crown with a 366 average, 43 home runs, and 142 ribs. There was no question he would join the Sox in 1939. And the build-up by the Boston Press was off the hook as the kid turned out to be as advertised. Um, and then some. So, let's take a look at Ted Williams' rookie year. I am so ready to have my face melted off this week by some, you know, Teddy Williams stats. Ted Williams, 1939 rookie season. 6.8 war. They didn't have a rookie of the year award then, but the splinter, he came in fourth for AL MVP voting. He played in 149 games, 677 plate appearances, 131 runs, 185 hits, 44 doubles, 11 triples, 31 home runs. His 145 RBIs set the pace in 1938, and it is a rookie record for RBI that has never fallen. Again, 145 ribs in 1939, 107 walks, and 64 strikeouts. Total opposite of what we see in the major leagues today, right? A 327-436-609 slash and a 1.045 OPS. 344 total bases, which led the league. And 160 OPS plus. And listen to this. He led the American League with 12 intentional walks. A rookie. Well, you know... Ted was like a breath of fresh air to the uh, beleaguered and mediocre Red Sox organization. And his fresh and evident love of the game, it, it won the hearts of the Sox fans like right from the jump that rookie year. In 1940, Williams moves permanently to left field. He smashes 23 home runs, 113 RBIs, and he's got a 344 average. He placed first in OBP, runs scored. And it was the first of 12 consecutive seasons he would lead the league in OBP uh, in years that he was eligible. He went away, did service time. We'll talk about that down the road. But if he was there for 12 straight seasons, he led the league in OBP. Ironically, you know, like I said, with the exception of those military years, which I'll get to, he led that league every year in OBP. And from the beginning... Teddy was known for like this, uh, you know, relentless batting quizzes aimed at his teammates. Things like, what was uh, Ted Lyons' outpitch to a left-handed hitter late in the game with a guy on third? Or, what would Bobo Newsom start you out with in your first plate appearance of the game? And he seemed to live and breathe baseball. And soon thereafter, he became known as Teddy Ballgame. After a brief honeymoon with the press... And in the highly competitive newspaper town that was Boston, 
you know, newspapers are dying everywhere now. But back then, you know, it was crazy. It was, you know, like New York, there was all these newspapers competing against each other. While the local media and Teddy Ballgame, they begin to have a contentious relationship. Writers like Dave Egan, Austin Lake, they would look for ways to tweet Ted and get under his skin. And sometimes they would literally provoke a story where one didn't exist. Too bad they were ahead of their time. They would have fit right in with ESPN nowadays, right? Man, I mean, it's just right out brazen hatred. For example, listen to this. August 30th, 1952, Dave Egan writes in the Boston Record. It seems disgraceful to me that a person such as Williams now is going to be given a key to the city. We talk about juvenile, juvenile delinquency and we fight against it. And then officially honor a man we should horsewhip for the vicious influence he has had on childhood in America. I mean, you hear this shit. It's just over-the-top, blatant trolling. Shit you see on Facebook nowadays. And this was a constant by these ass clowns. Sure, Teddy was easy to hate on. He he self-inflictingly brought a lot of this on himself. He was cocksure. He was brazen. And that turned off many of these sanctimonious scribes in, in the press corps. Some of these writers really had it in for Teddy. And the splinter never helped his own cause, frequently barring the press from the clubhouse, sniffing the air derisively as a writer walked by his locker, and on more than one occasion, spinning towards the press box with utter contempt. Now, there were also these fans who liked to twist Teddy's tits as well. During his second season, Teddy began to turn on the pickle fans. In his later years before his death, Teddy admitted to having rabbit ears. It didn't matter if Fenway was roaring with cheers. Teddy could always hear the smattering of a couple of boos from the crowd, and it ate him up inside. And he also admitted he was never coy, never diplomatic. Teddy would say before his death, I was impetuous and I was tempestuous. I blew up, not acting, but reacting. I'd get so damn mad, throw bats, kick the columns of the dugout so the sparks flew. I'd tear up the plumbing, knock out the lights, damn near kill myself. I would scream out my frustrations at the top of my lungs, end quote. He loathed the Fairweather fan, who loves him after going three for five, but booed him on an 0 for day with a couple strikeouts. And he promised himself that he would never tip his cap to the, to the fans. He would never take a curtain call. The fans weren't worth it. And folks, that was a promise that he kept. Although he admits there were a few times he was tempted to break his self-promise. He just couldn't bring himself to do it. Ted Williams was a complicated type A feller. And yet, despite all the turmoil that followed his career by the press and some of the fans, he had a fantastic relationship with umpires. He never showed an umpire up. Never argued a call. Not once in his career did Teddy Ballgame ever get ejected from a baseball game. Which just blows me away. That fascinates me. Here's this uber competitive type A cantankerous dude. And you're telling me he ain't never been run? That's wild, man. That's wild. And though he was like this lone wolf, Chaz, Michael Michaels, he had a great relationship with ball players, both on his team as well as the opposing teams. 
1941, Teddy Ballgame has a season for the ages. He bats 406, despite the sacrifice fly counting against the hitter's average. It's probably higher by today's metrics. Very few players have achieved a 400 season before him, and no one has done it since that 1941 season. He also led the American League in runs and home runs. That season, he also set the record for the highest OVP in the 20th century at 553. Barry Bonds has since broken that mark. The first time was in 2002 when he had a 582 OVP. And then in 2004, he set the bar at 609. <laughs> what? 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 609 OVP. Get out of here with that. 61%. That's insane. Boy, oh boy. So, two months after the 1941 season, a day that will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the Empire of Japan at the Pearl Harbor Naval Base in Hawaii. And as the sole provider of his mother after... You know, his parents had divorced. Teddy was exempt, but that didn't prevent some of, it, uh, some of the fans and media from questioning his courage when he initially chose to play baseball and pay off his mother's annuity. He already, you know, he's got national stature as a star ball player at a time when baseball was the unrivaled king of American sports. This made him a convenient target of criticism by the trolls. However, comma, the servicemen cheered for Williams more than any other player when they attended games. By the end of the season, Teddy's fourth, the splendid splitter had hit for the triple crown, leading the league in average 356, 36 home runs, 137 RBI. And for the second year in a row, he was second in MVP voting. Now look, if batting 400, and then the next year you bang out the triple crowd, and you don't win an MVP either of those years, I don't ever want to hear about anyone being snubbed in MVP voting ever again. When the season ended, he signed up for the U.S. Navy's V-5 program to begin training as a naval aviator. Teddy spent three of his prime years, his 24, 25, and 26-year-old seasons, becoming a Navy, then a Marine Corps fighter pilot. And like anything the splinter put his mind to, he became one of the best fighter pilots around. So good at flight and gunnery that he was made an instructor, and he served much of the war training other pilots. You know, like a real Marine Corps top gun instructor. After the war in 1946, Teddy returned to the Red Sox, finally received his first MVP, leading the Sox to their first World Series since 1918. He led the league in OPS, of course, total bases and runs. Boston would lose the cards in uh, seven games as Teddy struggled with an injury to his elbow. In 1947, Teddy collected his second triple crown with a 343 average, 32 dongs, and 114 RBI. In 1949, he barely misses out on an unprecedented third triple crown. By the slimmest of margins, he led the AL in homers and ribs, but he lost out to Tigers' George Kell by one ten thousandth 
of a point and batting average. And I, I, I'm a huge fan of the Triple Crown. I'm watching uh, Goldie out here in St. Louis, Paul Goldschmidt. I'm really rooting for that dude. I hope he does it. I think he's a little off on, uh, what's he off on there? Home runs, maybe? Or RBI? 1950, that probably could have been his best season ever. When he had 25 bombs, 83 ribs at the All-Star break. Unfortunately, uh, Williams would shatter his elbow, crashing into the wall at Comiskey Park during that All-Star game. He would miss most of the rest of the season. And to hear Ted tell it, he would never be the same hitter ever again. Although, one can hardly tell looking at his constant mind-bottling numbers. In 1951, he, of course, again led the league in OBP and slugging. In 1952, the Korean conflict is underway, and the Marines recalled a number of pilots, including a less-than-pleased T.S. Williams, who by now is a 34-year-old captain in the Marine Reserves. And he argued his case. He really was not happy about the way the draft works. And they took him anyway. Uh, he and his first wife, Doris, have a young daughter at this time named Barbara Joyce, or Bobby Joe for short. And when it was clear he had no choice but to comply, Type A Teddy was determined to do his best. So he requested training on jets and was assigned to VMF 311 Marine Corps Squadron, which uh, flew dive bomb missions out of uh, Base K-3 in South Korea. And Captain Williams, he flew 39 combat missions. On his third mission, he barely escaped with his life as his Panther jet was hit. And it was hit hard. He had to crash land. The plane burned to a crisp. But Captain Williams was on another mission at 0800 the next morning. The squadron was elite. And for more than a half dozen of these sorties, Williams found himself as the wingman for the legendary NASA astronaut, John Glenn. But Teddy began having uh, uh, severe ear infections, and he was consigned to sickbay for two stretches. When it was obvious that the conflict was winding down, Williams was mustered out, sent back to the States. He was uh, welcomed back as the honored guest of the 1953 All-Star Game throughout the first pitch. He was then able to quickly get some of his skills back together to bat 407 and 91 at bats. Ho-hum. You know, that's just Teddy being Teddy, right? My God. He breaks his collarbone in 1954 spring training camp, and he misses so many games at the start that he winds up uh, 14 at bats short of having the prerequisite 400 to qualify for the batting crown. He really should have won. With his 354 average, he appeared in only 117 games, but he still led the league in walks with 136. And those walks, well, they hurt him, since the batting title was based on at-bats and not plate appearances. He certainly had enough plate appearances to qualify, and later that criteria would be changed, but Williams was never given credit for winning the batting crown that year. After the season, he... And uh, how do I do this? Okay, look, bunny ears, quotations. He retired, which was really, from my research, it was just a divorce ploy to keep his cash. 
Uh, he didn't make a start in 55 until May 28th, finishing the season with a 356 average, 83 RBIs, and about two-thirds of a season. 1957, that may have been his crowning glory, though. Uh, he showed the baseball universe that he truly is one of the greatest ball players who ever swung a bat. By now, he's 40. And he was still splendid, but not so much a, you know, a splinter-like physique anymore. He had gone through war, divorce, suffered broken bones and chronic pneumonia. Yet, despite all the accumulated adversity, Teddy hit three eighty-eight. And only six more hits would have given him a four hundred average. And maybe a younger man, he legs out those six in a season. We'll never know. His 526 OVP was the second highest of his career, and so was his uh, 731 slug as well. Uh, He dropped 38 bombs that year. Truly, truly a magnificent season. His final three seasons saw a decline, although it really wasn't like this precipitous decline. You know, he hit 328 in 1958. Most ballplayers, you know, hell no, but... Williams, he held himself to this higher standard. Even though he won batting titles, he would forever bemoan that it was 16 points below his 344 lifetime average. The batting title was a seventh, and that's not counting the 1954 and their dopey at bat rules there. And Teddy couldn't live with that. He had to come back one more year. Uh, he had to come back for a swan song in 1960. He insisted to the Red Sox organization that he be given a 30% pay cut for his awful showing the season before. Um, oh, and I missed out on that part. Yeah, the season before was terrible. He got a horrible neck injury in spring training. Was forced to wear a neck brace. He really didn't overcome it, the injury that year. He batted 254 with 10 home runs, 43 RBIs, and 272 at bats. So Teddy comes back, and he, you know, he can't live with that. He can't go out like that. He comes back, he tells the Red Sox, you know, give me a 30% pay cut on my pay. That's, you know, what I deserve after that awful showing last year. And at that time, you know, the 125 grand that he made. A season. It was amongst the highest salaries in baseball at the time. So by the end of the year, Williams went out hitting like the star icon that he was. He came out bashing 316 with 29 home runs. And, you know, not bad for a 41 year old, right? His very last major league at bat was that 29th home run. And for you trivia heads, that last dong came against pitcher Jack Fisher of the Baltimore Orioles. And I believe I have the Kurt Gowdy call here somewhere. Let me see here if I can find it. Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. And, I mean, that's just the stuff of legends right there, right? I mean, 
goes out like a champion, hits the home run in his last at bat, and then comes off the field, basically gives the Boston Press Corps the finger before leaving. Hey, uh, he spent the next several years doing the, really the only thing he loved as much as baseball, and that was fly fishing. He would also sign an uh, endorsement deal with Sears Roebuck, which produced uh, an extensive line of Ted Williams brand sporting equipment like tents, sleeping bags, fishing equipment. And he would marry for a second time to Lee Howard of Chicago. It was a short-lived marriage, though, as Teddy truly met his soulmate in life, Louise Kaufman. And they never married, but she stuck by Ted through the thick and the thin, even his third marriage to Dolores Weddick, uh, which occurred in 1968, when she was apparently already pregnant with his son, John Henry Williams. But... Lou Kaufman was always in the background. She was six years older than Teddy. She was a fishing champion in her own right. And she was also just, you know, the spicy, feisty chick who could verbally spar with Splinter on his level. And he loved that. She could handle it, and he loved her. He adored her. And there were always women in Teddy's life. He was a man's man, a real coxman. And he never seemed to have patience for, a long, for the long game when it came to relationships. He once said, yeah, I guess I was a great hitter, but I was a lousy husband and I was a terrible father. After his requisite five-year wait, he was inducted to into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. And in his induction speech, which we heard at the beginning of the show, he was the first Hall of Famer to plead to the Hall uh, for them to recognize the many great Negro League players who had not been allowed to play in the segregated majors prior to 1947 in Jackie Robinson. Teddy, uh, many say he, he tried really hard to hide his mother's heritage. And he wrote in his autobiography, My Turn It Back. It's a very good book. I, I, I highly suggest if you're a Ted Williams fan, read this book, My Turn It Back. If I had my mother's name, there is no doubt I would have run into problems in those days with all the prejudiced people who lived in South, South California. One can only speculate that his own awareness of racism it might have influenced his Hall of Fame speech when the Red Sox finally, 12 years after Jackie broke the color line. Well, that's another story for another pod. You see what I'm saying? Integrated by signing uh, Pumpsy Green... It was Ted Williams who chose Pumpsy as his throwing partner before the games. In 1969, Teddy becomes manager of the Washington Senators. The team showed a significant improvement in his first year, and he was named manager of the year. He signed up for five years, but he lost interest after the Senators failed to improve, and some of the players, they really shaped under his regime to the point of near revolt. Uh, and, you know, here's the problem. Great players expect expect players to be great just like them. They expect you to be able to turn it on and do it just like them. They don't understand that you can't do it just like them. But, you know, the game of baseball sports in general, it doesn't work that way. Each player has their own skill set. And if every player could be like Ted, it would be a boring-ass sport. It's why it's hard for great players to be managers. A lesson Teddy learned in Washington. He did move with the team to Arlington when they became the Texas Rangers. He served as the Rangers' uh, first manager in the history of that franchise. But he basically begged out of his deal at the end of the year, and the club obliged. And throughout his years as a player and manager, 
He was larger than life. He had a booming voice, a presence. He had charisma. He was fighting. You know, he was a lightning rod. He was loved and hated by the fans. He was always ready to war with the press. And he once said, I did a lot of yakety yak, partly to hide my rather large inferiority complex. And for many years, Ted lived in a small but comfortable cabin in New Brunswick's Miramachi River, where he was always on the hunt for his favorite prey. Well, that is after American League pitchers. His favorite prey was Atlantic salmon, a fish he so admired that he was a leader in the fight to protect the species from overfishing and other encroachments on their habitat. And there is still an annual Ted Williams Award given to others who join the cause. For the last several years of his life, Teddy was active in baseball memorabilia. His son, uh, John Henry, took over the management of this memorabilia marketing company. But Teddy suffered a stroke and a subsequent heart operation that sapped the legend of his strength. He slowly entered into a period of decline and he died on July 5th. 2002. In death as in life, controversy surrounded the the icon. Two of his three kids decided to have his body cryogenically frozen for the possibility of some kind of later revival if science can somehow lead to restoring life to those who have been preserved. And that's not creepy and absurd enough. With the family fighting over his frozen body, his assets, and his estate, it was discovered that Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived, the splendid splinter, Teddy Ballgame, his frozen body had been decapitated by surgeons, and his head was stored separately from his body. A procedure approved by his son and his second daughter, Claudia, And William's oldest daughter, Bobby Jo, she fought the procedure. She said her dad wanted to be cremated and his ashes scattered off the Florida coast. And honestly, (laughs) it's just a bizarre and despicable end for one of the greatest ballplayers who ever lived. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up. Yeah, now the uh, Mr. Williams chapter in our collection of ballplayers here at Backwards Game Pod. Truly one of the greatest ballplayers who ever lived. And all of us have our guy. But I think we can all agree that Ted Williams truly was one of the very best hitters who ever lived, if not the greatest. So let's take a quick look at the amazing stats of number nine, Teddy Williams. 19-year playing career, all with the Boston Red Sox, 122 wins above replacement. That's 14th best of all time. 2,292 games played, 9,792 plate appearances, 2,654 hits, 1,798 runs scored, 525 doubles, 521 home runs, 71 triples, 1,839 RBI, 24 stolen bases in 19 years. Throw it out 17 times trying to steal. 2,021 uh, walks, which is fourth all time behind only Bonds, Ricky, and Ruth. Let's see here. 4,884 total bases. 
and a 344, 482, 634, slash a 1.116 OPS, which is second only to Ruth, and a 191 OPS+, which is again second only to that Charm City badass Babe Ruth. 19-time All-Star, two-time AL MVP, six batting titles, two-time Triple Crowns, uh, four times AL Home Run titles, four times AL RBI titles, 482 OBS and, and MLB record. Boston Red Sox Hall of Fame retired number nine, the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame. I had no idea. And recognition of his time playing for the Friars in the Pat Coast League during the mid-30s. We talked about that earlier. He's inducted in the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame as well. Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Major League Baseball All-Century Team in 1999. His Mexican descent on his mother's side, it gives him fair claim for being one of, if not, the greatest Hispanic baseball player ever. And let's not forget, maybe his most impressive record. 39-0 39-0 in bomber missions during the Korean conflict. 39 times that dude led missions into the hornet's nest of North Korea in clear danger of being shot down, you know, by Chinese and Korean fighters. And 39 times he returned safely to base. And many times, you know, in much, much better shape than his planes. What his numbers could have been if he didn't put it all in a line. To keep our country safe, free, and powerful. And there you have it, folks. The life and times of the great Ted Williams. Thank you so much for stopping by, checking us out. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed presenting the story. Again, Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. You can always find my show at Diamond Snake Jake. .pondbean.com as well. If you want to do your own research, uh, research, there is a lot of Ted Williams stuff out there and it's really fascinating stuff. A lot of great books, a really great ESPN Sports Century documentary, and all kinds of stuff on YouTube. Definitely no shortage on this most important American hero and baseball icon. And with the Splendid Splinter now in the collection, the train rolls on. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the Harvey's Wallbangers and his 1982 Milwaukee Brewers, a powerful and colorful collection of players who basically, well, they ambushed the American League that year behind the play of Hall of Famers, Robin Yell, Paul Molitor, Don Sutton, and company. But hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on their couch with their nose in their phone, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the deck.